Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. I'm Claire Bowman, Senior Editor at Host Publications, and in today's episode, Managing Editor Anarv Rold and I bring you more poetry from our respective quarantines. We focused on two of our favorite authors, Benjamin Fundane and Harriet Mullen. We discussed their work and the way it fits into the broad spectrum of the avant-garde. We hope you're safe and well, and as always, thanks for listening. doing with our lives and our oh my god we're waiting this is absurd this is a strange strange time and you know it's hard to see other cities that have paved well getting to to go back out into the world um whereas austin has been very bad um the rest of texas has been very bad it's month four coming up on month five of quarantine I definitely thought when we did Poetry for Quarantimes the first time around that in naming it that even, that it was kind of an isolated event and that we could be expecting news anytime that our world was going to be going back to some semblance of normal. It's definitely a long-term adjustment. It's affecting how we're going to live the rest of our lives, and now we just kind of have to really roll with it. It is very surreal. It's interesting to think of a, a virus or a disease which does not follow patterns of human logic, right? We are trying to superimpose our logic onto it, and that is just not how it works. But there is some logic. I mean, we don't know everything about this virus, which is a complete conundrum and very unusual. But we do know that, you know, if you wash your hands, if you keep your distance, right. if you don't, Lick gym equipment. Uh, I'm sorry, was that lick gym equipment? (laughs) Yeah, it's people who have a specialized knowledge can understand this or start to put it in some kind of frame of logic that normals, as I would call us, that normals can understand. But we're just sitting here at home, cooped up in our houses, trying to figure out what's going on without an expert's guidance. The conclusions are absurd and strange and um, untenable. A word that has been flashing in my mind since you and I started talking earlier today is uh, the word pivot mm. and how at the very beginning of quarantine, you and I were like, how are we, how can anyone be productive? But I have seen certain themes in our own lives kind of pivoting. There's the theme of survival and making a home. And then you pivot towards different versions of of being productive or comforting yourself. And I definitely think that recently I've just been like, humor, how can I like feed my spirit in playful and absurd ways that kind of complement the wildness and absurdity of our current times? We're learning how to engage with ourselves in different ways to keep ourselves sane, to keep ourselves fulfilled. And that's even with the ability to go outside and, you know, we're healthy, so we're still living a semi-normal life. And I'm super grateful for that. But the way that I have to care for myself has very much changed. 
And it's also changed with summer. In the spring, when we all locked down, it was so much easier to go on a nice walk and enjoy the sunset and get some fresh air. And now it is so oppressive at all hours of the day here in Texas. It was 106 last week. It's intense. It's always a hard time of year for me living in Austin because you look outside your window every morning and it just looks gorgeous. There's so much sun. But then you go outside and it is unsafe. (laughs) I'm certainly grateful for the interiority of the lifestyle I've been living and the ability to like reread books is something I've been doing lately that I haven't done in a long time because my reading list is crazy and I'm always just focused on what haven't I read that I need to read next. What has inspired you to revisit work? Um, Well, in part, encountering some new work that reminds me of things I've read in the past. Also, I just have a terrible memory, Anar. My, my brain it doesn't, it doesn't do that very well. So I can read things, I can watch films, and then a year later, I'm like, what was that about? It, it, it's not that I don't pay attention and that I don't thoroughly enjoy them. My memory is just not great. So I guess the bonus of that is then I get to revisit things and it's kind of new all over again. I love that because... I've been revisiting things as well recently, but work does not hit the same when you're 20 versus when you're 30. It could have been more meaningful in the past or you can like suddenly really get it. Mm -hmm. And we're just having such just wildly different experiences now um, with the state of the world and aging and falling in love and falling out of love and, you know, getting married and life is happening. Yeah. And poetry is one of those things to me, that is just ever-living and ever-changing with every time that you read the work again. Yes, totally. That's how it should be. You know, that's what I like about it. It's regenerative. Like, every time I I come back to something, regardless of, of how long it's been since I've read it, I may pick up on something new and something different. And I think that's why I'm also attracted to the kinds of poetry that I read, primarily. Um, I try to read a lot of different things, but I really, really love things that have at least been inspired by the avant-garde. And I love any kind of work, especially in poetry, that is expansive and tries to include more of the world and more of consciousness in it. Yeah, there's some work that I'm like, this is a deathbed book. It's going to make sense within the hour that I die. I definitely just want to say you're such a huge source for like really great avant-garde and surrealist reads. Thank you. And I know in the future we're going to have a really fun time unpacking some of these movements. But today we have a little taste of that. Yeah. I think that you should make a book list called Deathbed Reads for (laughs) sure. So something that I've been searching for in quarantine has been comfort. Um, That has been a big theme for me, especially this past month. I've been feeling a lot of grief from different directions. Um, We said goodbye to Ice Cream Social with our final reading. And I was just so happy to have the opportunity for five years to host a reading series and make so many friends and really create a gorgeous space for our literary community. And in saying goodbye, I'm like, oh, no, there's this great big gaping hole. Yeah. (laughs) Which, like, as I learn to cope with that, I am discovering the beauty in grief. And it's one of those things where, like, 
revisiting poetry, and I realized that grief was something that I never quite understood or appreciated. And so now I'm revisiting work and seeing that, I mean, so much poetry is written from a place of grief, but I'm seeing that I can connect to work on a level that I hadn't been able to do before. That's really beautiful. And then I also just go nuts where I'm like, I'm not going to feel anything. I'm going to watch <laughs> Space Jam and eat some ice cream. Just really distract myself and throw myself back. Um, but one of my more productive throwbacks has been just revisiting French New Wave cinema, which is a passion of mine, translated French surrealist poetry, and in a surprising productive element to my day-to-day, I've revisited my studies in French. I studied French for about a decade when I was young, and about eight months ago, I began to like really tackle my French studies which has made just reading bilingual collections really, really fun again. Oh, yeah, I bet. I'm so envious of that because it's like you're getting to look into two, two different worlds at the same time. Oh, yeah. It also feels good when you're like, that doesn't translate directly. A translator <laughs> does not translate directly, as I'm sure everyone knows. So it's really fun to just see where a translator is coming from. Yeah. And in trying to comfort myself and revisiting work that I love, Everyone that knows me knows I'm a really big Benjamin Fondaine fan. And so I've been rereading the New York Review of Books poetry collection by Benjamin Fondaine titled Cinepoem and Others, which was edited by Leonard Schwartz, and it includes translations by Leonard Schwartz and seven other French translators. Wow, that sounds so fun. Yeah. So, Claire, because you, like, want me to indulge you, I want to tell you about Benjamin Fondaine. So, Benjamin Fondaine feels like family. I feel like a kinship to Benjamin that just is so special to me. So, here's a little, like, history about Benjamin Fondaine. He was a Romanian Jewish poet who wrote in French. His voice is surrealist, existentialist, and is described as an experimental formalist. I'm very sad to say that his very last manuscript made it out of the Drancy internment camp outside of Paris before he was deported and murdered in Auschwitz-Birkenau in 1944. So his last manuscript was written in an internment camp? I believe so, yeah. Wow. In Auschwitz? Um, no, he was transferred to Auschwitz, um, but there was a different internment camp where he was before he was transferred and that's where his final manuscript was written. Okay. It's so crushing. It's so sad. That is, how did it even get, uh, how could it remain protected enough to, for someone to get their hands on it? Yeah, it makes me really cherish the work that we have by him even more. Mm-hmm. I haven't found anything in English. Surely there's something in French with that kind of information. So Benjamin's work after his death disappeared, then one really beautiful person revives the work. And so in France, he is now widely available and widely read. And the United States, his work is not as easy to find and hasn't been widely translated. So I'm particularly grateful for this collection from the New York Review of Books. Cinepoems and Others was released in 2016, and I came across it at Malvern Books and have been transformed ever since. 
Benjamin Fondaine has completely changed the way I connect with language in my own life and in my own work. I struggled so much with poetry around this time. And then when I read these poetry script film hybrids, it all kind of clicked for me. And since then, I've discovered I am a poet filmmaker. Hell yeah, you are. I totally attribute <laughs> that discovery and realization to reading Benjamin Fondaine. Yeah. I hold this book really closely to my heart. This is made for you. It's so perfect. I can't imagine you before you read this book. I was lost. <laughs> Just a little poet filmmaker out floating around. <laughs> but yeah, these dinner poems. So this collection has three of them. And I've only been able to find three, so it might just be the three. And so it was originally titled Three Scenarios and published in 1928. And he was definitely influenced by Robert Desnos and other surrealists of the time who were interested in film script hybrids. During this time, I mean, the 1920s, 1930s, screenwriting is not at all what it is today. So it is fun to just see these directorial and like cinematic elements written into these poems. Because if I were to hand a script in to a director today and had, you know, like close up of an eyeball here, um, I would definitely be like blacklisted. What you're describing is when film was still a very new form for artistic expression. And the phrase avant-garde, not to get too, you know, literary or academic on us here, but it means advance guard or advance guard. And it means being at the forefront and really forging new territory in a kind of experimental, radical way. So it makes sense that when film was brand new, that's what people were doing. You know, I'm, I'm no film historian, but I see Hollywood today and it's, it's a little sad to me that it's become so formulaic. Even though, obviously, there are some incredible movies being made, but there is a formula that screenwriters kind of have to stick to. Yeah, something that I do love about being a filmmaker in Austin is that you're really free from so much of that. I mean, there's yeah. none of the money, but all of the freedom, which I'm starting to realize is the key. I mean, that's pretty much our motto as artists, isn't it? None of the money, all of the freedom. Absolutely. Something cute that I wanted to mention was that originally in the preface of these cinepoems was, um, cinepoems are not cinema. Let's kick off the era of unfilmable scripts, but they're also definitely not poems either. <laughs> that's cute. So if you're still like wondering what is a cinepoem, it's written. I know there's a lot of cinepoems, which are actual films. This is more like a script. And it's just absurd and super playful. And it has tons of exaggerated imagery, which makes it impossible to film. I would argue now experimental film and contemporary technology has really allowed us to do some really great things. But I like to think that these are completely and totally unfilmable. Yeah, it's... Interesting to me, you know, it depends on what kind of poetry you're reading, how deeply focused you are on image, um, because there's so much more at play, usually. But I like the idea that the cinepoems are already priming you to be hyper-focused on image as you receive the work, and perhaps less focused on meaning. I like that as a formal concept. Okay, Claire, so I'm going to read 
just a couple of pages from the cinepoem Ripened Eyelids, which kicks off the collection. And y'all, this is for the 10th time, like a poetry script hybrid. And there's numeration on the far left side of the page. And not that anyone has asked, but I am a Capricorn. And something about it being just so organized is really thrilling to me. I love that. Okay. Ripened eyelids. Along a poorly lit wall runs the shadow of a hand. Parallel to it runs a white hand with a pointing finger. Another shadow on the same wall. The pointing finger runs the other way. The head of a street lamp with two candles and two flames whose human gaze plunges desperately into the night, illuminating dim forms with a reflector moving right and left. Signs windows hesitating over. A long stretch of sidewalk on which a hat rolls. The arc of a punch, a dangling hand gloved in white, another punch, a pair of trousers with an impeccable crease sags, overalls standing in a boxer stance, a bloody nose, a cap on a silk scarf seen from behind, a black eye, a flaccid hand tries to catch the end of the scarf, grasps nothing but air, a sledgehammer falls, a hand digging through a pocket on the ground, The street light, leaning so far that it almost falls, considers the blood-drenched hat demolished by violent kicks. An explosion of magnesium. A store window with a pale mannequin wildly applauds. Scrolling headlines of a newspaper in lights, far off. Unreadable, but then Paris, the dot dot dot. At the party of the ambassador of Spain, the youngest infant, dot dot dot. A hand. Vulgar, dirty, huge, approaches the shapely knee of an ordinary-sized woman. The hand swells until it is able to hold the knee in the hollow of its palm. But in the knee, the eye of a woman. The hand diminishes, shrinks, gathers itself up until it becomes the twitching hand of a vagabond whose head rests on the stones of a quarry. In the frame, play of light from a single neon sign, then two, three, a turbulent ballet, Superimposition of Vies de Strasbourg on the man asleep on the quay. At that moment, the green carpet of a billiard table. Through a window, seen vertically, white billiard balls, two by two, coupling and quickly parting deliriously, a fan in close-up, in fast motion. The breathing apparatus of a man whose lungs gently, then more rapidly, contract, close down, break off, dead leaves. The empty revolving door of a cafe begins furiously turning round and round, then fills. A man, a second one, a fifteenth, caught up in the spinning door. The rhythm goes from speedy to very slow. A man lying horizontal to the wall covered by a quilt of metal, shaken by a high fever. The man standing, seen from behind, dances the shimmy before the bar counter. I leave you guys at 34B. First of all, looks very different than what I imagined it would look like. It is fairly lineated, like a poem. I guess I was imagining more like script format with poetic language, but um, it's fully hybrid. Yeah, what this reminds me of now that I've like made a couple of films is that it feels like it's a shot list. Yes. But a very absurd and poetic one. And so some of these line breaks will just like completely confuse you. 
So I tried to like kind of complement the way it's lineated, but I have in the past noticed if I leave too much breath or space from the previous line to the next, you kind of lose sight of what you've just seen. Yeah, it doesn't, I don't mean this as a critique, but it doesn't seem to build a scene necessarily. I think there are moments where it kind of gains momentum and things are kind of connecting in a certain way. But then it really, to use your word from earlier, it really pivots and you're kind of reeling. I mean, a lot of the um, verbs kind of enact that reeling. So there's the revolving door of the cafe that's furiously turning round and round. And I feel like that's kind of imagistically what's happening as well. So you're not even able to kind of like stitch these images together. Yeah, they slowly build. But it does feel very slacker-esque, like if you've ever seen Richard Linklater's Slacker, where a character just feels like they're being pushed through a film. Yeah. I really love that feeling, which, now that I'm thinking about it, um, really complements the vertigo that I've had for the past month. <laughs> it, it is just this, like, just strange little things. I do love that something transforms while it's, like, in your hand. There's a life to that that feels so magical. The idea that this complements your vertigo is so interesting to me because that may be like a little key into why the Surrealists would do something like this. Like they're trying to imitate some kind of function of the brain that we have and we can access that is not comfortable necessarily and does not help us to like make sense of our universe. But is is very much like a part of us and and who we are as as a conscious species and so yeah I think that's a really cool connection that you're like you're kind of already in the vertigo space you're kind of experiencing that discomfort so you might as well read something that matches it or at least doesn't require you to try to think in a more linear way which is difficult I assume when you're dizzy yeah it has like a primalness to it. That might be what I love the most from a core level. But I also just love really silly directions like a fan in close-up in fast motion. It's like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way in the streetlight leaning so far that it almost falls considers the blood-drenched hat demolished by violent kicks. I just love that kind of cartoony image of the street lamp leaning and then now all of a sudden it's sentient. It's so much fun. Yeah. We will definitely post these on our Instagram for y'all just because this definitely exists best on the page and it's just fun to pick it all apart. It's very playful. Yeah. I just think this kind of poetry is so, to me, it's very real in terms of what our brains do on a daily basis, which is take all these little snapshots. And it's not always easy to follow, you know? It's, it's hard to process. And uh, it's also really beautiful. It's also, I think, where art comes from, is that ability to gather images and sensations and pieces of the world, then to kind of analyze and repurpose later. I feel like I'm seeing mental mechanics in this rather than having it like sort of editorialize or explain that to me. It's enacting it. So that is just that is so cool. I didn't even think about it being this collection of things that we can't quite process, which is something that I think has been a very quiet theme for the year. 
you know, you think of what is currently happening and you're like, well, what's the story? What's the arc? Where does it end? And I think that's a very difficult thing about life to accept is that it just keeps going until it doesn't. Very rarely (laughs) do we get an actual narrative. Yeah, I totally agree. I think what's cool, though, about this particular style of surrealism is that that kind of creed in art seems like it would be very nihilistic and like the the sort of conclusion of it is, oh, okay, so none of this matters. But to me, it's really the opposite. And I don't know if I'm just projecting, but I see that we're putting these things on a numbered list and no one thing is more important than the other. There is no hierarchy between these images. They're all valid and all worthy of being, you know, committed to the written page. Even if it's just a hat rolling down the street or a pale mannequin in the store window, they're meaningless, perhaps, on their own, but compiled here, all of a sudden they do have meaning. And the meaning is they're here for beauty and for art's sake. And to me, that's really fabulous. And it doesn't have to have some underlying narrative arc to be important. Claire, it's always so much fun talking to you. Well, you picked the right topic. I have a lot to say about this. (laughs) Good. I want to just read to you the very last line. Yes, please. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, what a head it was, too. What a fabulous head. I love the brazen just confidence of this style of writing, too, where it's just these line breaks are absolutely absurd. How are you going to have slow and half of a parenthetical on a line by itself? Like, how are you going to do that? But, you know, it's just very confident, this style of writing, and we should all be able to access this. And that's why it's important to me to read it, is is not to say, well, it's not fair that they felt like they could do that, but no one else could, because that's not true. We can, and if we want to, it's available to us. We can write about ripened eyelids and grasping at the air. What is a ripened eyelid? I do not want to (laughs) know. Who have you been reading? Well, I've been reading lots of stuff at the same time, which is always such a strange experience. And I feel so fired up all the time in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's uh, it's perhaps not the best practice, but it's it's just where I'm at right now. And while I'm reading new books, like I'm finally um, reading Olio by Taihemba <sighs> Jess. Yeah, Taihemba. Finally reading that and just taking it really slowly and really savoring it. And it's just a gorgeous book. The way it's laid out is... That is a work of art. It took him, I think, about a decade from start to finish to put it together. And the only way to read that book is by savoring every page because it's just, it's a masterpiece. I agree. And so while I'm reading it and kind of just keeping it close by, I decided to pull from my shelf a book that I haven't read since I was in grad school. What is it, Claire? It is called Sleeping with a Dictionary by Harriet Mullen. That was your Friday read a couple weeks ago. It was. This book was put out by the University of California Press. And Harriet Mullen 
teaches at the University of California in LA. So the thing is, is when I was in grad school and I would read these books for class or I would come upon a book that I really loved on my own, I wasn't at the phase yet where I would then go seek out the rest of that person's body of work. So I have not read anything else by her, definitely ordering several of her other books because she has quite a few. And I think that they're pretty varied in terms of style. But this particular book is her fifth poetry collection. It's an Abbasidarian book in that all of the poems are in alphabetical order. They generally have like a kind of justified prosaic form that looks like a dictionary entry to some degree. So there's a connection there with the title. But the investigation of language is on a serious scholarly level. And of course, just on the language level of a poet, a poet who is definitely invested in avant-garde practices. One of the techniques that Mullen uses in this book is called S plus seven. And that is a technique from the Ulipo group, speaking of groups that did not have a lot of women in them. So kind of badass that she is has sort of appropriated that um, for her own purposes and made these incredible poems. So one thing that I really love about certain facets of the avant-garde is that they actually played these language games where the formal constraints were really tight and they really didn't include a lot of, you know, like inspiration, right? It, it's a game essentially, but what comes out of it are these wild, strange experiments of language. And so that's part of what she does in this book. She takes certain texts like the Goldilocks story, and there's a couple of Shakespeare sonnets that she has rewritten in here. It's very disruptive is what it is. And she's kind of rewriting the kinds of language that we take for granted. Wow. Oh, my God. These poems are super weird. So let me just say, there are certain poems in this book that are just abecedarian, so alphabetical, collections of nonsense sounds. So, for example, this, this poem called Blah Blah starts out, Ak, ak, I, I, ba, 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 bam, bam, bay, bay, berber, bee, bee, blah, blah, bobo, bon, bon. <laughs> and it goes on from there. It seems like complete and utter nonsense, but all of a sudden, out of nonsense sounds, you'll get words like hip hip and frou-frou that spark some sense of meaning where you understand that she's doing some kind of cultural critique, and it's very veiled. You really have to be looking for it to engage with this work. That almost sounds meditative, like you're saying mantras over and over again mm -hmm. to where then the mantra takes on its own meaning and enlightens other thoughts that come to the surface. Yeah. May I read this poem to you that is another example of a sort of language game, almost nonsensical poem of hers, just so you get an idea of the spectrum of language play in this book. There is a poem at the back called Zen Acorn. So we're at the end of the dictionary here. Zen Acorn. A frozen Indian acorn. A frozen Indiana corn. Afro-Zen Indian acorn. Afro-Zen Indiana corn. A Zen fro in Diana corn. Frozen fan in zero Canadian. Indian corn for Arizona non-radiance. A narco dozen phase in African. Wow. So you can hear it, but... Basically, just the letters of these words are getting rearranged to make new words, and it changes more and more as it goes down. 
But whereas something like frozen fan in zero Canadian might not really resonate with any kind of meaning for me, when I get to the last, these are couplets, when I get to the last couplet, a narco dozen phase an African. That to me has words that are buzzing in my brain with meaning. And I think it's just a really interesting process of allowing, rather than image, right, we're working with sound here on a deep level. Yeah, this feels very performative. And this just makes me want to hear Harriet perform these on a stage. Me too. I'm sure the way I read these is (laughs) just wrong. But I'll go ahead and read for you the title poem, Sleeping with the Dictionary. I beg to dicker with my silver-tongued companion whose lips are ready to read my shining gloss. A versatile partner, conversant and well-versed in the verbal art, the dictionary is not averse to the solitary habits of the curiously wide-awake reader. In the dark night's insomnia, the book is a stimulating sedative, awakening my tired imagination to the hypnagogic trance of language. Retiring to the canopy of the bedroom, turning on the bedside light, taking the big dictionary to bed, clutching the unabridged bulk, heavy with the weight of all the meanings between those covers, smoothing the thin sheets, thick with accented syllables. All are exercises in the conscious regimen of dreamers, who toss words on their tongues while turning illuminated pages. To go through all these motions and procedures, groping in the dark for an alluring word, is the poet's nocturnal mission. Aroused by myriad possibilities, we try out the most perverse positions in the practice of our nightly act, the penetration of the denotative body of the work. Any exit from the logic of language might be an entry in a symptomatic dictionary. The alphabetical order of this ample block of knowledge might render a dense lexicon of lucid hallucinations. Beside the bed, a pad lies open to record the meandering of migratory words. In the rapid eye movement of the poet's night vision, this dictum can be decoded like the secret acrostic of a lover's name. Yum! What an erotic poem! Isn't it so good? Her description of her, I suppose you could say, relationship with the dictionary (laughs) is... I'm envious. I, I want to be that kind of poet. I want to have this kind of lover's relationship with language. And the imagery is very sensual, and the, the lexicon is that of sensuality. But I love that she goes there. That, that's the way we feel about our language as poets. Even when, as, as an African-American woman, as a Black woman, Harriet Mullen, one of the things she talks about and one of the things she writes about is this kind of complicated relationship with standardized American English, which is what she was taught to speak as a child, which kind of alienated her a little bit from her Black uh, peers in Fort Worth, Texas, where she grew up. But she inherited the English language just like you and I did in our own respective ways. And that means something different for each person coming from each different cultural background. And so I love that she not only investigates that and holds it up to the light to see where there are problems with it, But she also has this love affair with the English language that she 
is not shy about describing for us in this poem. Not shy at all. Something that really resonates is not only that the dictionary is in a relationship with Harriet, or Harriet is in a relationship <laughs> with the dictionary, but that it's used as like an instrument or a tool to like elevate their human experience. And it just makes me think of like, the writer becomes one with the pen. You know, my experience as a hornist, like my horn and I, when I played every day for 12 years, we were one organ. Yeah. It feels like the dictionary is Harriet's oneness. Yeah, and I love the double entendre of sleeping with the dictionary, right? It's mm -hmm. like sleeping with it by your bedside, waking up in the middle of the night to, to look into it. But there's also this dreamscape involved in the relationship in which, like, it seems to me that's kind of where the poem culminates. The alphabetical order of this ample block of knowledge might render a dense lexicon of lucid hallucinations. I love that. Lucid hallucinations, first of all, as a concept. I mean, that really complicates this poem. It's not just about a poet with her dictionary at her bedside and, oh, this little metaphor of it's my lover. But no, she dreams the dictionary. It's a really cool and complicated little scenario. Have you ever been um, really obsessed with something that it colors your dream world? I'm embarrassed to say I once played Candy Crush so much. <laughs> That my dream world was just Candy Crush, so I had to stop. That's amazing. I mean, definitely there are things that um, I engage with a little too much that end up coming into my dreamscape, but I wish the dictionary were one of them. It is not at this time, but, you know, poet goals. Above anything else, this was an aspirational poem for me. I'm like, I really need to open a dictionary. The idea that the exercises of these kinds of like surrealist games that she has co-opted, here's a line from the poem, exercises in the conscious regimen of dreamers, right? What a weird collection of words, a conscious regimen. That's very Capricorn to circle back. Like that's very much I'm awake and in control, but she says of dreamers. So she's really taking this idea of the exercise and the linear practice of writing the poem into the dream world and man that's where it's at for me that's mm -hmm. right where it's at okay I am going to read you another poem because I wanted to show kind of another side of her in that she does have an eye to the political through the sphere of language and so through the pieces of language from our world that are deemed normal that we kind of don't even really think about this poem is called We Are Not Responsible. We are not responsible for your lost or stolen relatives. We cannot guarantee your safety if you disobey our instructions. We do not endorse the causes or claims of people begging for handouts. We reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Your ticket does not guarantee that we will honor your reservations. In order to facilitate our procedures, please limit your carrying on. Before taking off, please extinguish all smoldering resentments. If you cannot understand English, you will be moved out of the way. In the event of a loss, you'd better look out for yourself. Your insurance was canceled because we can no longer handle your frightful claims. Our handlers lost your luggage and we are unable to find the key to your legal case. You were detained for interrogation because you fit the profile. 
You are not presumed to be innocent if the police have reason to suspect you are carrying a concealed wallet. It's not our fault you were born wearing a gang collar. It is not our obligation to inform you of your rights. Step aside, please, while our officer inspects your bad attitude. You have no rights that we are bound to respect. Please remain calm, or we can't be held responsible for what happens to you. Wow, what range? That's a different poem right there. And this is all in the same book. Yeah. Again, what's the focal point here? Like, we're talking about language, and... If you cannot understand English, you will be moved out of the way. Yeah, we're talking about the kind of formal language of our culture that sort of scoots us around and pushes people into the margins. I think that's a really cool investigation. And and yeah, what a range in her work. There's a full spectrum from this extremely rigid commercial language and then <laughs> the bing, bang, bomb, bomb, boom, boom <laughs> of the blah, blah poem. May we all be so gifted to navigate these different planes so seamlessly. So gifted. I, again, as a poet, just look at some of these poems and go, wow, even if I had the idea for that, I'm not sure I would have the courage to put those words on the page. And, and so I really respect taking that liberty to, to be as brazen as you please in your art form. I think it's something that I personally aspire to, and I think um, a lot of us should. My God, that last stanza. Step aside, please, while our officers inspect your bad attitude. You have no rights we are bound to respect. Please remain calm, or we can't be held responsible for what happens to you. It's so provocative. She's really doing a persona poem in a way, but the persona she's taking on is just every white person in a position of authority, whether it be your airline stewardess or a cop. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole idea behind the poem of we are not responsible so so tragically relevant yeah wow claire thanks for bringing the fire today thank you this was such a cool mashup next week we are recording with one of our favorite people and one of the host authors in fact she is the first author to receive the host publications chapbook prize monica Teresa ortiz Yay. Uh, this will be our first interview, so we're extremely excited to have her on the show, and definitely keep an eye out for that episode. Because speaking of bringing the fire, I have a feeling she's going to. Monica has been quarantined far away from everyone <laughs> for four months, um, so I have a feeling she's ready. Monica is, we are so privileged to know her, and um, it's just going to be such a cool episode. I just want to mention, so we've worked really hard on having a consistent uh, posting schedule on social media. We want to elevate our authors, make sure that everyone knows that their work exists and that it's great. But we also have been highlighting local organizations. We've been highlighting foundations to donate to clubs that you should join we've been doing our friday reads which is like letting you know what our staff is reading for the week um little snippets of this podcast so follow us at host publications on instagram yeah i definitely believe that publishing houses and small presses should be more transparent about processes and we want to be transparent and fun and show people who we are 
Um, so follow us. Let me know what you guys want to see more of. I mean, right now, we're just like in our houses working hard from our computers. But yeah, we're here for you. Yeah, definitely follow us on social media and feel free to comment and let us know what y'all are reading, what kind of films you're watching, how your how your quarantines are faring, and uh, yeah, connect with us. We want to know what you're up to. It's uh, it's been a dream, Anar. It's been a dream. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>